This evening, we take as our topic the fourth question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a question no doubt familiar to many of you, which asks, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And as we think about this idea, we will be looking at Acts 17, Acts chapter 17, so please turn with me in your Bibles there. Our reading will be from verse 16 through the end of the chapter, verse 34. We'll be focusing on Paul's speech as it begins in verse 22. And in this text, we will see illustrated uh, many of the things that the Catechism has described about God. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst 
But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. What is God? A difficult question to answer. In fact, if we were to look at the larger catechism, the answer is similar but more expansive than what we read in the shorter catechism. And it states that God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. But then it goes on to say that he is incomprehensible. And so we have before us a task of thinking about this question, what is God? And part of the answer is that the answer is incomprehensible. What does this mean, that we, that we can't know God at all? No, there is a true knowledge of God, but we must also recognize that we as creatures who exist in time and space, who are finite, who are changeable, are not going to have a, a precise and perfect knowledge of God, that our best speech is going to be before God as though it is something like a child's talk, a, a babbling, that we come up with all of these complex metaphysical categories that we use to try to describe God, and that is legitimate. The scripture itself uses these terms, as we see in our passage. And the, but we recognize that this is, this is God accommodating himself to us as creatures, and that to know God as he knows himself is not something that we are capable of. Yet nevertheless, there is a true and genuine knowledge of God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And so we need not despair of knowing who our God is. Nor do we need despair of knowing what God is, even as we struggle with our puny minds, our creaturely minds, to lay hold of these uh, great mysteries of who and what our God is. So this evening, we will consider uh, who and what God is and how this should lead us to worship. We're going to be considering who and, and especially what God is in his essence. What is God? And how as we consider this, it should lead us to a point of awe and reverence and true worship. So we'll consider uh, what God is as a spirit under three headings, he is a spirit who is infinite in being, who is unblemished in his justice, and who is unsearchable in his love. God is a spirit infinite in his being, unblemished in his justice, and unsearchable in his love, just to uh, draw on uh, some of the things that we uh, might say of God as we find him revealed to us in the scriptures. Now, before diving into our, our first point, considering God as a spirit infinite in being, it's perhaps helpful to have a little bit of, of background in our text as Paul is in Athens and we find him speaking with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And we, we might not 
really know what sort of context Paul is in. We still have the word stoic in our language. We say that somebody has a stoic disposition when they bear up well under hardship. But just to give a, a brief, uh, some brief context, two philosophical schools in Athens, the Epicureans, and their view is this. The purpose of life, uh, the good life, is one in which we are free from bodily pain and in which we have peace of mind. And the way forward to that is to lead a simple lifestyle with simple pleasures, lead a life of moderation, and this will, this will remove pain from the body. But then also to not fear any kind of deity. The deities exist, but they're aloof. They're uninvolved. They don't really care about human affairs. That earthquake you saw, don't interpret that as the deities as having some kind of quarrel with humanity. Uh, They're aloof. You can venerate them, but don't really trouble yourself over what any higher power might think about you. Stoics, by contrast, believe in a more pantheistic view, that the world is animated by a logos, a rational principle that is not personal, but nevertheless rational. And this world's soul pervades everything. And the way forward in life is to align yourself with whatever happens outside of you, because whatever happens outside of you is according to this rational principle. And to try to go against that rational principle is irrational. And so if you find yourself sick, accept it, go along with it, and even concur in your sickness and be ready to die because that's what the rational principle is doing right now and the way to live life is to conform yourself to that rational principle. And so they studied uh, nature closely and tried to conform themselves to it, but also resigning themselves to nature or concurring with nature. But it's a pantheistic view. So on the one hand, you have the Epicureans who view any higher power as aloof, uninterested in human affairs. And you have the Stoics who have a very imminent view that, that uh, this logos pervades the universe but is also coextensive with the universe. And Paul comes preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection And this causes a stir, and they bring him before the Areopagus, which could refer to the hill, Mars Hill in Athens, but could also refer to the tribunal, the court, the judges that took their name from that hill. If you were to think of, say, somebody coming to Washington, D.C. to evangelize um, uh, in that part of our country, and you read the account that they took this evangelist to Capitol Hill, you could think, well, that, that just means that they took him to the neighborhood of Capitol Hill, which is a place in Washington, D.C., but more likely we would understand it that they, they took him to testify before Congress, that they took him to that body that derives its name from the place. And so this is, this is the context. This is the, the philosophical milieu that Paul is in. They bring him before uh, not just a, a crowd, in, in all likelihood it's before the... the the judges who are going to enter into a kind of pre-trial with Paul and evaluate his teaching. As Paul finds an entryway and speaks to the Athenians and gives a, something of an internal critique of their practice, 
he describes the nature of God. He uses philosophical categories to show that their worship of the true of, of God is a false worship that is not according to knowledge. And so Paul begins to describe who the living and true God is. And first we find that Paul describes him as one who is infinite in being. God is infinite in being. This is to help you follow along. We now have a sub-point under this main point, an A and a B. The A is that he is an infinite being who is transcendent. Our second point will be that he is an infinite being who is imminent. He is transcendent. He is not contained by space. Look at verse 24. And the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is not contained by the structures that you build. And this is something that even Solomon himself recognizes when he builds the temple in the Old Testament. He says, I've I've built a temple, but Lord, heaven in the highest heavens cannot contain you. God is not bound by any place. That he is everywhere present. And wherever he is present, he is present in the totality of his essence. And so when we say that God is everywhere present, he's not bound by a temple. He's not even bound by heaven and earth. He's not even bound by the creation. We ought not to think of God as something like a gas that kind of fills a room, that a body that is extended through space and you don't have the totality of the thing in any one particular place, but it's, it's all spread out and diffuse. If I'm, in any sense, in two places at once, for example, I'm, I'm over here on your left side of the pulpit and I'm also over here on your right side of the pulpit. I'm not in either place in the totality of my being. That a part of me is there, but not all of me. It's just, just my hand is over here and just this hand is over here. But when we understand the way the scriptures speak of God as not being bound by time, we should rather understand that wherever he is present, he is present in the totality of his being. And so God is present here in the totality of his essence. And he's also present here in the totality of his essence. But you cannot draw a circle around it and say, this is where all of God is, as though he's all within this point and not outside of this circumference. You say, how does, how does that work? How, does, how is God present in the totality of his being here and nothing of his being is missing, and yet I haven't contained his whole being, and the totality of his being is also present here and in every place, that he is everywhere present in the totality of his being. This is where we begin to bump up against our, our limitations as creatures. And we cannot understand how God is everywhere present in the totality of, of his being, that he's not like us, a body distributed through space. This is also the case with respect to time. We don't, 
necessarily see it as clearly as we do elsewhere in Scripture here, but I do think we see it somewhat in our text in verse 24 and 26. Verse 24, again, we read that God made the world and all things in it. And in verse 26, we read that he appointed times. That God appointed times. That he's not himself subject to time, but he's the one who appoints times. That he's not like us who exist within time and who experience time as a succession of moment, uh, a succession of moments, one moment after the other. So we might think about our own, our own lives. None of us have the totality of who we are as human beings before us in a single moment. You can think of the, the years of your life past, and you can think of the years of your life to come, which you don't know what that's going to be like yet. But right now, all you have is, is the present moment, and you experience your life which is distributed through time one moment at a time in succession but you never have the totality of your life before you as a single, present, instant, constantly before you. And yet God is not bound by time. When we say that he is eternal, we don't simply mean that he uh, is enduring within time and that he experiences time as a succession of moments as we do, but that he experiences the totality of his being as an eternal present, as an eternal now. As Peter writes in Second Peter that a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years are as a day that, that time before God. God does not exist within the confines of time. He doesn't experience time as a succession of moments, even if he interacts with us within time. And again, what, what is that like? It's a struggle for us as creatures to, un, to, to even conceive of, of what it would be like to have the totality of one's being not experienced as a succession of moments, but to be entirely present before oneself. God is a transcendent being. He is independent, verse 25. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God does not stand in need of anything from the creature. God does not derive his existence from the creature. He is self-existent. He is so full of being and life himself that it is through him. He's sheer being, sheer existence. And from this one flows all other derived existence. And all derived existence contributes nothing to his own being. It's sometimes asked by skeptics, well, you say that God created the world, then what created God? And there's a one-word answer that you can learn. You need to also learn the concept that it refers to. And that word is aseity. Aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. That God is ase. He is of himself. He has existence of himself, deriving it from none other. He exists through himself. He is underived life, unborrowed life in his essence. Uh, 
in an analogy that might help illustrate what this is like would be to think of the sun that you see during the daytime and a campfire. A campfire is something that has derived existence, and in an ultimate sense, so is the sun. But a campfire, you have to be constantly putting wood into it to keep it going. So you're sitting around the campfire, 15 minutes go by, the fire dies down. You want to build it back up, so you've got to put more fuel into it. You've got to put more logs into it. It has a derived existence. It depends on, on more input. With the sun, as we see it in the sky, we, we're not sending a more fuel up to the sun in, in spaceships to keep it going. There's, there's not some external input that we need to be sending to the sun to keep it going. Everything that the sun needs to burn in a secondary sense, relative to the creation, it has within itself. The sun doesn't derive its heat, its energy, from something external to itself. Now, we recognize that that's, that analogy breaks down because ultimately the sun does have a derived existence. It derives its existence from God, from Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of his power. But relative to the the creation. This gives us something of an analogy where we can think of, yeah, there, there, is, there is some concept that we can have of something that, that doesn't borrow its energy or its life from something else in a creaturely way, recognizing that, again, ultimately the sun is not ase, but is derived from God's power. So God stands in need of no one. He is independent in every way, an underived life, a fullness of life from which all other life and being is derived. And so we might think that now, having described this transcendent, unbounded God, that there is perhaps no way of of knowing him or comprehending him Yet we find that he is also imminent. 1B, if you're trying to outline. God is infinite in being, and he is imminent. That means that he's close. He's nearby. As our text puts it, he's not far from every one of us. As Paul describes it in Romans 11, from him and through him and to him, are all things. That's the the beginning, the middle, and the end. From him, that's the origin. All things derive their existence from him. Through him, that's the continued, ongoing existence of all things. All things continue to have their existence through God. And unto him, all creation is made for God and finds its purpose as it relates to him and finds its end in him. And again, you see each of these unpacked in our text, that God is close and relational to his creatures that he has made, even though he so preeminently transcends them. Verse 24, we see that God is the source of all things. God who made the world and all things in it. We see that he is the sustainer of all things. Verse 25. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who sustains. 
Again, verse 28. In him we live and move and exist. That it's in God that we have our continued existence. That the creation is not a a top that God has set off spinning. Kids, if you have a a toy top that you like to play with, uh, perhaps you have a fancy one that has a string that you can get it going really fast, as though you were there to set it in motion, but then it continues under its own momentum or its own inertia. The creation doesn't have an inertia by which it just keeps existing on its own, but it is constantly upheld by God's divine power. And so he is close to his creation, upholding it, everywhere present, sustaining it. And he is the end of creation, and especially of human creation. He is the end unto which we are directed. Verse 27 God has appointed times and places that we, or that they, men, would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. That God has made man that we might find him, that we might have communion with him, that this is the purpose for which we have been made. Catechism question one, what is the chief end of man, the primary destiny of mankind? is that we should glorify and enjoy God, that we should live in communion with our God. He is the end for which we have been made, and so he is close, not far from us. So God is infinite in being. He is transcendent, but he is imminent, far beyond our comprehension and reckoning, and yet close, to be sought by us, and to be sought through his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, something else we might say about God as a most pure spirit is that he is unblemished justice. God is unblemished justice. Justice. We see that come out in our text as Paul preaches about the final judgment. Verse 31 God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Is God concerned with justice? Is God concerned with human affairs. He is. And there is a day when Jesus Christ will wield a gavel, so to speak, of untarnished righteousness and of unblemished justice, in which all human actions will be brought before him, evaluated, and rewarded accordingly. There will not be any injustice whatsoever. There will be no punishment that is a single degree beyond what it ought to be, but only pure and perfect fairness. This justice is based in the character of God himself. That we ought not to think of justice as this thing that exists out there independently of God, that God simply recognizes and, and decides to communicate to the creature. But it is 
derived from his own intra-Trinitarian relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a communion of love. And that this is the standard and basis for all human justice and interactions. Justice must be a relationship between persons. This is why... uh, There cannot be a a basis of justice in an impersonal universe or in a God who is thought to be less than Trinitarian. Justice is always a matter of relating, people relating to one another. That you can't sin against a rock. You can sin with a rock. You can sin against God by worshiping a rock. You can sin against your fellow man by by, uh, throwing the rock at that person. But the rock itself is not a victim of a crime. That justice deals with, with people, and to some degree perhaps even animals, uh, rational creatures, or at least uh, animate creatures. And it is only the triune God who gives us a basis for justice, and he is concerned with it, and he will judge the world in righteousness by his Son, who has himself demonstrated perfect righteousness. And so this comes to bear upon Athens in Paul's day. The supreme God is not aloof. This comes to bear in our own day, even in post-modernity, where justice is thought to be nothing but a social construct that, that holds up well until, it's somewhat cliche, but it's, it's really quite true, people are willing to say that justice is a, a, a social construct until you steal their wallet. And then all of a sudden, they begin to recognize that that's not fair, that there is some standard of justice, and I have been wronged. So we recognize that God is a most pure spirit who judges the world with unblemished justice will do so by Jesus Christ. The third... We recognize also that God, as a most pure spirit who is unblemished in his justice, is also unsearchable in his love. In the Catechism, the the question uh, doesn't say that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his love, and and perhaps that brings up the question, did, did the Catechism miss it? Did they miss love? Did they, did they miss what the Apostle John had to say, that God is love? To which I would answer, no, they didn't miss it. They're, they're quoting that portion of Scripture in which God reveals himself to Moses, in which he says, uh, Moses asks, show me your glory. And God passes by and says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God who forgives transgression and iniquity and sin. And the way that gets translated in the King James is goodness and truth, but in our modern English translations we have steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what God is. He is abundant in this steadfast love and faithfulness. He is abounding in mercy and compassion. And so without any compromise to his justice, there is also mercy that is held forth to sinners 
And again, we see this attribute of God in our text in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This glorious command of God, that man is here groping after God, searching for God, not finding him. Stoicism isn't getting the job done. Stoicism isn't leading to a knowledge of God. Epicureanism is not leading to a knowledge of God. Platonism is not leading to a knowledge of God. Aristotelianism is not leading to a knowledge of God. And so God gives his son. God reveals himself in his son, Jesus Christ, to give a true knowledge of himself. And with that history-changing event of God taking on human flesh, the transcendent God, infinite in being, now taking to himself, united in one person, a human nature, which is a body within time and space, which does consist of matter that has been created, who does give his life to satisfy divine justice and for the forgiveness of sins, God, by Christ, now commands all men everywhere to repent, to metanoia, that that change of mind. Change your mind, what you think about God, about yourself, about sin, about righteousness. Side with God against yourself. Acknowledge the righteousness of God and his, his dealing with his son at the cross. And this goes out boldly to all men everywhere. Think about the mercy of a God who is so abundant in steadfast love that that's the scope that he gives. It's not restricted to one nation or people group Go tell Corinth, but not Athens, that they should repent. Go tell Columbus, but not San Francisco, that they should repent. No, all men everywhere. That you meet the cashier in the grocery store and you ask the question, what is God's command for this person? What is the revealed will of God for this person? It is that they should come to Christ. You go meet your Muslim neighbors and you ask, what is the will of God for this person? That he should come to Christ. You go meet your neighbor with a very progressive political and cultural ideology. What is the will of God for that neighbor? That they should repent. That they should come to Christ. It's the free offer of the gospel in which Christ is is held forth for all men. But, but consider that it's here expressed as a command, that God commands all men everywhere to repent. This is God's revealed will in Jesus Christ, that they should come to his Son for salvation. So we see God's unsearchable love as it's manifested historically in Christ and in the New Testament age in which this message goes out everywhere. And we also see it in action, in a particular life in verse 34, in particular lives in verse 34. And we read that 
Paul's message hits home for some in Athens, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Dionysius the Areopagite, member of the council. And, and one thing I just want to point out is how, how deeply entrenched this man, this council, and this city are in idolatry and how God rescues them. Consider the name of the city where Paul is, Athens, named for Athena. Consider the name of the council in the hill in Athens, the Areopagus, the hill of Ares. And then consider Dionysius' own name itself, quite similar to Dionysus, the god of wine and, and uh, uh, ecstatic frenzy, wild frenzy. The idolatrous naming of this, this uh, of this community is three layers deep. The city, named for a pagan goddess. The council, named for a pagan god. The council member, named for a pagan god. And he hears, he converts, he believes. And not just him, but also a woman whose name is recorded for us, Damaris, and others with them. That we see God's unsearchable love as it's historically presented to us in the gospel, but we also see it unfolding in real time. As people come to believe the gospel, even when they're three layers deep in pagan, uh, pagan deity names, Christ comes, the news of the resurrection comes, of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ comes, and they turn and they believe. So consider that this is who your God is. He is this infinite being who is transcendent, that you can't wrap your mind around who he is, but he's also close to you. He's made you, he sustains you, he's made you for himself. He is just, but he is most merciful and gracious. And he has made you for fellowship with himself in Jesus Christ. Should that not lead us to appropriate worship of our God according to knowledge, according to as he has revealed himself, to worship our God in spirit and in truth? Let's pray together. Our God, we praise you for who and what you are, and we confess that it is good that you are the independent creator, and that we are the dependent creatures, and that we find all of our life in you, all of our life in your Son, all of our life in your Spirit. We thank you for that great mystery that we are, in a creaturely way, and yet in the most preeminent way that is possible for a creature, drawn into that life as we are brought into fellowship with you, O Father, through your Son and by your Holy Spirit. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to this word that we've heard by standing together to sing hymn 219, O Worship.